when I talk to people about the tour and, you know, I always mention Iowa City, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm excited about the Texas theater, excited about the Hollywood theater. Um, and, oh, and oh, by the way, do you know that like that this, it's going to be on top of a roof in downtown Iowa City? This is going to be fantastic, like outside, like the real deal. Hello, and welcome to Filmcast Podscene. My name is Nathan Platt, and I teach music and film history at the University of Iowa. And I'm Ben Delgado, and I'm the programming director here at Film Scene in Iowa City. In today's episode, we sit down with author Todd Melby to talk about his new book on Fargo. We also get set for Film Scene's Holiday Classics series by taking a stroll with the lesser-known but endearing 1940 feature Shop Around the Corner, the original inspiration for Nora Ephron's rom-com masterpiece You've Got Mail. Ben will also share with us some coming highlights to watch for in the weeks ahead. So what's the deal now? Gary says triple homicide? Yeah, it looks pretty bad. Two of them are over here. Where is everybody? Well, it's cold, Margie. Fargo, a Coen Brothers classic that turns 25 this year, is a dark comedy about a semi-stage kidnapping gone horribly wrong. But it's more than that. It's an affectionate yet prickly portrait of mundane living in the northern Midwest. How snow, cold, car dealerships, and a particular way of speaking can shine different light on relationships, loneliness, and the spectacular power of human folly and self-delusion. Film Scene is happy to offer once again its annual screening of Fargo on the rooftop on Thursday, November 18th at 7 p.m. And to celebrate the return of an unforgettable film to an unforgettable location, we are thrilled to welcome Todd Melby, author of A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, the untold story of the making of Fargo. The book is hot off the presses, and this is a topic near and dear to Todd's heart. Todd is a reporter, documentarian, and podcast producer, and his projects include a 2016 documentary, We Don't Talk Like That, Fargo and the Midwest Psyche. His podcast, Drunk Projectionist, is a must-listen for movie fans interested in the backstories and unsung heroes of filmmaking. Todd, welcome to Filmcast Podscene. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, very, very happy to have you join us here. You've spent a lot of time studying and thinking about the film, about Fargo. Uh, how did your relationship with it get started? Where did that begin? Well, I saw I saw the movie Fargo on opening night to the public at the Uptown Theater in Minneapolis in 1996. So I saw it at a movie theater like everybody else. And my big memory from that night was that when Peter Stormare kills the innocent woman in the upside down car, um, her friends, she was there and her friends were there, she being the actor that portrayed the soon to be dead woman. And all of her friends were like, oh my gosh, hi. And then <laughs> Stormare kills her. <laughs> and they're like, oh. <laughs> Oh my god! That's, that's, that's my big memory from that night. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. And in the book, you you talk a little bit too about like your sort of like your family's history with the region and stuff, which I thought was really interesting. Um, could you just give a little bit more background on that? So I was born in a tiny prairie town in western North Dakota called Hedinger, North Dakota, and my maternal grandparents were uh, cattle ranchers, and so my mom grew up on this cattle ranch in western South Dakota. And I'm of mostly Norwegian heritage. And so my grandmother's maiden name was Thorstensen, 
So mm-hmm. everybody in her generation called, mm-hmm. you know, you pronounced it Torstenson. <laughs> uh, and okay, I really right. didn't care anything about my Norwegian heritage, you know, until relatively recently. And I still haven't been to Norway and I don't like Ludafisk, but I do like Lefse. Lefse is really, really good. <laughs> my grandmother made great, great, great Lefse. So, you know, this, this book was one of a, a couple of projects that gave me a chance to sort of come to terms with, with my North Dakotaness and sort of examine, you know, the, you know, some of the, the cultural things that I think people like me and that I know I have, like I have trouble expressing anger. I have trouble, you know, telling people exactly what I think. And I think a lot of the characters in the movie Fargo <laughs> also have trouble saying exactly what they think. I mean, the solution to the, you know, having problems with your father-in-law is not to have strangers kidnap your wife. That is not the thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be much better to just call the guy son of a bitch, get it out of your system and move on. Like that's the, that's the same thing to do. Right. No, no, see, I, <laughs> I don't need a, a finder's fee. I need finder's fees, what, 10%? Heck, that's not going to do it for me. I need the principal. Well, Jerry, we're not going to just give you $750,000. What the heck were you thinking? If I'm only getting bank interest, I want complete security. Heck, FDIC. I don't see nothing like that here. Well, one of the things that I loved about the book is that you're bringing to light a lot of people who might not get attention in sort of your standard, you know, the making of this movie account. Um, I mean, you talk to Stephen Park, who plays Mike Yanagita, and Michelle Hutchinson, who plays a, an escort in a scene for, uh, to, to Steve Buscemi's character, um, and also the dialect coach, um, Elizabeth Himmelstein. And I was just uh, wondering, like, how, how do you decide who to reach out to? And as you learn about these, these individuals, some of whom are, you know, may only be in the film for like a scene or two, how does that affect your relationship with the film? It affects my relationship a lot with the film because I remember how much I liked or didn't like a particular person. Like, you know, Stephen Park now is like one of my favorite people in the world. <laughs> I love Stephen Park. Well, what about you, Mike? Are you married? You got kids? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I was married. Uh, I was married to... You mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that. You know, in addition to being super thoughtful and explaining acting and explaining his particular character and his particular scene super, super well, uh, he also was nice enough to, you know, provide me with photos for the book. And he was nice enough to, you know, be on my my book launch um, Zoom thing, you know, when that happened several months ago. And so when Stephen Park was at, uh, was at Cannes earlier this year with the whole Wes Anderson French dispatch crew and I'm follow Stephen Park on Instagram. Like I was really, really rooting for Stephen Park. I'm like, yay, Stephen Park, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, great. yeah. So I'm, it gave me like a, you know, it's just, you know, kind of fun to like know someone who's super talented and then is an extraordinarily nice person too. Yeah. Uh, but of course, mostly it's, it's, it's people's insights as far as, you know, uh, how a movie is made, you know, those, there are thing, definitely things I hadn't thought about before as a moviegoer that through doing this book, I was able to think about more. And then, I, you know, obviously, I, you know, my goal was to share that with, with readers. And as, and as far as figuring out who, who to talk to, I mean, my goal is just to call everybody and mm-hmm. <laughs> work really, really hard to get as many people as possible to talk to me. And I was mostly successful, but not 100% successful. I think it's, it's rare that an author or a journalist 
is successful in getting everybody uh, to talk to him or her. And just kind of piggybacking off of the, what we talked about earlier in how you're, you're choosing to speak to these people, uh, find everyone you can, make all these calls. In that process of speaking to people, is there anything that popped up that really surprised you that you had no idea you were going to come across and maybe took up a big chunk of the book or a small part uh, that you could talk about? There's a lot of things. I mean, uh, the person, there was many, many people I was super happy to, to connect with. Um, but John Cameron is the, was the line producer uh, on Fargo. And I didn't give him very much space in the book, but he was like incredibly helpful. He grew up in Michigan, uh, knew Sam Raimi. Uh, they made Super 8 movies together. And he ended up working with the Cones. And I think he was, he had a different role on the previous Cone Brothers movies. He was not the line producer on Hudsucker Proxy. He maybe was an assistant director or something or second director. I, I can't quite remember. But he, he did tell Joel and Ethan he wanted to be a line producer for Fargo. And so we talked about like, what does a line producer do? Um, you know, how much was the money for Fargo, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of our conversation, I said, you wouldn't happen to have any daily call sheets, would you? And I'd been asking everyone for the daily call sheets. And the daily call sheets are what happens during principal photography on every given day. Like if you have those, you can track chronologically what scenes were shot in what order and how many extras there were, what kind of props they had, what the makeup was like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was desperate to have those because I wanted to, uh, the chapters in the book that dealt with principal photography to be chronological so we could track the lack of snow and Joel and Ethan's increasing desperation for snow. Right? And if I had the daily call sheets, I'd have that narrative. And at the end of the conversation, I'm like, you wouldn't have to have the daily call sheets, would you? He goes, well, I just got my house. You know, we just did some cleaning. We moved something, something, something. But I think they're on this old computer. And then within like 30 minutes, he emailed them to me. Wow. And like, bang, I had them. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I was so happy about that. And I was happy about the actor audition tapes. Uh, so Jane, Jane Drake Brody was another terrific person for me. Um, she was not the top casting director, but she was the local casting person. So she um, saw the auditions for all the local actors, all the Minnesota based actors. And, you know, if they passed her, they would go on to John Lyons or the brothers. And she said, well, I've got these audition tapes. I'm like, oh, really? Where are they, Jane? Can I see them? <laughs> and she's like, well, they're in a barn. I just moved to Michigan. And so, like, I'd email her every couple of weeks or call her, you know, did you get, did you get your barn cleaned out? Can you send me the tapes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and then, then it went on and on for weeks and weeks. And, and then finally she said, oh, I have them, sent them to me. And, and then I had those. And that was, like, incredibly helpful as well because during the – the chapter that's about casting, I had actual things that I could look at, you know, that actually had actual conversations. So I was able to get those, you know, impromptu conversations between actors and a casting person. That's such a neat part of the book um, because you're talking about, you know, people like William H. Macy and, you know, his investment in, in getting the role of Jerry Lundegaard, but you're also talking about people that are, you know, just a very different stage of their career, right? And and on a sort of different different sort of level of star prominence and realizing how important this is for them and also how carefully their performances are being assessed by the casting directors and by the brothers. And, and that makes sense 
when you sort of step back and think about it, but like actually hearing about like, these are the details that they were looking for. These are the the qualities of, of how they looked or how they spoke. Um, that just really blew my mind because I hadn't, I hadn't sort of stopped to sort of think about, you know, uh, f- film casting on that level of detail. It was really neat. Yeah, I was, it was terrific to have that document to look at. And, you know, I've been reading all these other movie books since I finished mine, you know, the Chinatown book, the Goodfellas book, uh, the Midnight Cowboy book, and I just finished the, the Godfather book because uh, I'm interviewing that author. His name is Mark Seal, and the name of his book is uh, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. <laughs> 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 and he, you know, for The Godfather, there was, he had Al Pacino in his mind for Michael, and this, and Paramount Pictures wasn't crazy about that idea, but he just, in his mind, he could always see Pacino back in Italy. And and, you know, he did, he did all these tests to, be, you know, to try to prove to the studio that the actors that he wanted were the best actors. I mean, mm-hmm. and of course, now we say, of course, Pacino, but like Pacino was unknown then. Mm-hmm. I mean, his first movie, yeah. Panic in Needle Park, hadn't come out yet. He was just a New York theater actor. And I shouldn't say just a New York theater actor, because oh. I love New York theater actors. Sure. But from a from a film perspective, yeah, it was right, right. You know, a different deal. You've been looking at reading uh, other uh, film books lately, but... What I found in this one was very interesting. Some of the touches that you added, uh, like the Fargo ease section, the timeline, the where are they now? And and we talked about already the amazing pictures that you were able to include. Um, how much of that was in your head beforehand and how much kind of came along in the process? Uh, I imagine the pictures were always something you were going to do, that you were going to use stills in some capacity, some set photography, that sort of thing. But when did you think, oh, I'm going to do a, a Fargo E's uh, dictionary or I'm going to throw in a timeline and like all this stuff that I don't, I mean, I can't say I've read every film book, but I don't know if I've ever seen like a, a dictionary like that in a book. <laughs> well, thank you for my, you know, my, my whole dictionary innovation, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, I guess obviously the dialect is much on my mind because we had interviewed the dialect coach for the audio documentary um, that my wife and I had done five years previous, uh, you know, for the 20th an- anniversary of Fargo. So I hadn't fully thought of necessarily having a Fargoese uh, section, but, you know, as I was reading the script, especially when I read, read the script, uh, I noticed that the Cone brothers spelled words differently than, than we usually do in the English language, like groceries was spelled G-R-O-W, because they wanted the actors to, you know, have that long O mm-hmm. groceries, and believe me was uh, not two words, but you know the cone spelled it believe me one words B L E E M E, because again they wanted the actors to have the long E sound. Uh, so I thought it would be helpful for uh, people unfamiliar with the Minnesota accent to see it spelled out that way, because it's mm-hmm. it's 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 a key to the actors that this is the way we want the movie to sound. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it. But then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. But what this guy look like, anyways? Oh, he's a little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh-huh. In what way? Oh, just in a general kind of way. And also, there's also some, some I guess, Minnesota-isms, for lack of a better word, that... Um, you know, that I also thought were, mm-hmm. would be helpful for like people on the East Coast, West Coast, or in other countries to kind of know about. These are things that maybe 
I take for granted because I, I live in Minnesota, but other folks mm-hmm. might not know. They might not know what the heck's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that point, but of course, when you say it, it's, it's obvious, but you know, people in other parts of the world, even other parts of the country might find this more useful than humorous. To me, I thought it was just kind of funny to include. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And of course, right. I tried to inject some humor into the explanation of it. Yeah. Fantastic. Is there anything you would like listeners to know about the book? Hmm. You know, I analyze the script a lot. And, and to me, that's, that's super fascinating, partially because I'm a writer and also because I also think that mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to movie going, writers don't often get enough credit. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talk of like, you know, directors, directors, actors, directors, actors, <laughs> but, <laughs> but somebody has to write the script. And the fact, that, the fact that Joel and Ethan write the script, direct the movie and do the editing is, is I think like, a soup there. That's like three superpowers. And, you know, a lot of directors also write and some directors write and compose, I guess, John Carpenter. And, you know, I think of Spike Lee with do the right thing. I mean, he wrote, directed, and he acted in the movie. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> and he was great as an actor yeah. in that movie, you know, so to sort of take a step back and to think about like the Coen brothers as writers, and also to think about the evolution of the script of Fargo from, the super rough draft. I wouldn't say it's mm-hmm. a total rough draft, but this, this this early undated draft that I found in a library in California. And, you, and then you go to the casting script, the shooting script, and then the published script, and you can compare all those with the finished movie. And so I that was fascinating for me to see how it changed, right. what was added, and what was left out. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, it was great to chat and meet you and love your book. And I also have started listening to your podcast, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, thank, thanks so much, Todd. And if, and if you um, if you want to talk a little bit more about the pod... Um, oh, of uh, the Drunk Projectionist? Maybe some of the highlights of episodes that you, you would have people check out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first few episodes are mostly film directors. Uh, so Barbara Koppel, the documentarian. Yeah. Uh, Frederick Wiseman, also the documentarian. Uh, Kelly Riker, fantastic, you know, mm-hmm. fictional filmmaker. Uh, Charles Burnett, I think, and I was so mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. thrilled to talk to Charles Burnett because of uh, Killer of Sheep. I've just loved that film forever. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, however, I did just talk to Stephen Park uh, on Friday, and so I'll be editing the Stephen Park interview for for the podcast coming up. All right, so listeners can look for that episode uh, coming soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Todd. This was great. Um, great great to meet you. Yeah, thank you. Well, well thanks, guys. I look forward to seeing you in a, just a couple of weeks. All right. Thanks, Todd. Bye. This morning when I received the little Christmas tree that you all sent me, I was deeply moved. I, I read your little note over and over, and it made me very happy that you missed me and hoped that I'd be coming back home soon again. To celebrate the holidays, Film Scene has put together a program of six festive favorites to see on the big screen. From black and white perennials to the newly minted additions to the holiday canon, there is something for everyone. Even the most scroogiest of scrooges will have a chance to have some fun with these movies. The lineup includes It's a Wonderful Life, of course, uh, which will be screening on a 35mm print with a special introduction from Mary Owen, daughter of star Donna Reed, who is an Iowa native. For high-octane action films, it's hard to beat Die Hard as a Christmas classic action film. We'll be including that. There's also Elf and The Muppet Christmas Carol uh, that the whole family can enjoy. 
National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which was an annual watch in my house growing up, and a film adored by cinephiles but lesser known than the others in the series is The Shop Around the Corner, which is the subject of our deep dive on this episode. Probably isn't easy for you to imagine anyone like a man of my type. Now, Mr. Crawley, don't let's start all over again. It's Christmas and I'd like to be friends with you. Besides, you're wrong. Do you mind if I tell you something? No, not at all. Well, when I first came to work here, something very strange happened to me. I got psychologically mixed up. You don't say? Yes. I found myself looking at you again and again. I just couldn't take my eyes off you. Oh. Mm-hmm. Right. And all the time I kept saying to myself, Clara Novak, what on earth is the matter with you? This Crawlick is not a particularly attractive type of man. I hope you don't mind. No, no, no. Now, here comes a paradox. I found myself falling for you. I can't believe it. Yes, Mr. Crawlick, and very much so. You certainly didn't show it. Adapted from the 1937 Hungarian play Parfumerie, Ernst Lubitsch's The Shopper on the Corner is a story of quarreling lovers who don't even know they're in love. Alfred Kralik is the top salesman at Matichek and Company, the titular shop around the corner. Claire Novak is a brash young upstart who pushes her way into being a clerk at the shop despite Kralik's protests. And the two are immediately and endlessly at odds while at work, but they soon discover they've been falling in love through anonymous letters to one another. How long has it been going on? Well, we've exchanged four letters. Four letters? That she's no ordinary girl, is there? Now, listen to this. Are you tall? Are you short? Are your eyes blue? Are they brown? Don't tell me. Mm-hmm. What does it matter so long as our minds meet? That's beautiful. Somewhat of a departure for Lubitsch from his romantic comedies of the 30s that were more heavily reliant on the comedy side of things, uh, Shop Around the Corner is a sweeping romance with some painfully poignant moments, but still not devoid of laughs. It's inarguably a restrained version of the Lubitsch touch that had been a signature of his fantastical films of the silent era that tended toward larger-than-life excess. But nevertheless, there's still that intangible humanity and masterful touch that make it a Lubitsch movie and make it one of his all-time best movies and all-time classic overall. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's a shame you have to go through all this, but... Of course, as long as it's only psychological, you won't. Only psychological? Mr. Krolik, it's true we're in the same room. But we're not in the same planet. Uh, Miss Novak, although I'm the victim of your remark, I, I can't help admiring the exquisite way you have of expressing yourself. You certainly know how to put a man in his planet. So, Nathan, what is your relationship to it? How did you come to this film in in your life? Yeah, actually, I think I was probably introduced to it through a holiday film series, not, you know, similar to what's happening here. This was when I was a student um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, at the University of Michigan, and the uh, Michigan Theater would show holiday films like White Christmas and Meet Me in St. Louis, and I think this was one of one of those titles, and I'm pretty sure that's the first time that I saw it. So I went in cold, but I was getting to see it on a really big screen, and um, I've seen it a few times since then. Um, it's it's so charming. It's really hard to um, well, first of all, you don't want to overhype charm because then you kind of ruin it. But but it is a very just sort of 
sweet film. One of my favorite memories, actually, of of it is watching it with my father-in-law in West Virginia because it was on TCM, again, either around Thanksgiving or the holidays. It was really nice. I think it's also fun, too, just because probably a lot more people know You've Got Mail, the Nora Ephron film that is a essentially sort of remake of, of this. Um, and so if you have that story in mind with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, um, it's really neat to see it with Jimmy Stewart and the male and the male lead and then Margaret Sullivan, because you can kind of see both these, th- those really famous actors doing their, doing their work, but at certain times the script becomes so close to you've got mail that you can also kind of see Meg Ryan and, Tom Hanks at the same, you know, at the same time, and that—that's—that's that's just kind of a neat experience. Well, I really wouldn't care to scratch your surface, Mr. Crawley, because I know exactly what I'd find. Instead of a heart, a handbag. Instead of a soul, a suitcase. And instead of an intellect, a cigarette lighter, which doesn't work. That was a perfect blend of poetry and meanness. Meanness. Let me tell you something about meanness. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just trying to pay you a compliment. Oh, oh, what why are you touching that? What is this are you a red doing? rose? No, you know, you know, it's a crimson rose. Something you read about in a book, no doubt. It's funny to you, isn't it? Everything is a joke to you. Yeah, to be able to overlap the two and, and kind of go back and forth. But for me, I actually I'd come to came to this film pretty recently as as a fan of Ernst Lubitsch, having seen a lot of his films, but not this one for whatever reason. Mm. Um, and I actually have never watched You've Got Mail in its entirety. I like those mm-hmm. actors. I like Nora Ephron. But for whatever reason, I get like 20 minutes into that movie and I'm just like, no, I, I, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it needs the Lubitsch touch for, for me. It needs the Lubitsch touch. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, they are different. They're both very much kind of of their times in the sense that, you know, you've got mail. It's all about these bookstores, right? And Tom Hanks' character is the, you know, the works for the big box sort of Barnes and Noble like chain that's pushing out the small independent bookstore that Meg Ryan runs. And the major change with shop around the corner is they both work in the same shop, but there is that, Mm -hmm. what what I think is kind of like more specific to that, you know, late thirties, early forties for this film is, is that sense of like economic precarity of, you know, she, she, ends up working in the shop by um, not exactly luck, but sort of by hook or crook. She comes in like desperate, like really needing a job and is going to sort of charm her way to a job, come what may. Well, we have, I'll take for instance this compact. Yesterday you couldn't get it for a penny less than three ninety. Today we're selling for two twenty five. Really? Yeah. Yes, that's a wonderful bargain. Yeah, well, everything in the shop is a bargain today. Yes, uh, imagine you'll be doing a big business. Well, I have no doubt of it. You were very wise to come early. We'll probably have such a rush you won't be able to take care of the customers. Well, in that case, maybe you should take on some extra help. Oh, he probably will, yeah. Maybe you could use me. I'm looking for a job. You know, that that wasn't very nice, letting me go through the whole routine. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I really didn't mean to. And he loses his job for a time in the film and you really like those are those are like serious moments and it doesn't it doesn't make the film dark but you you really feel that and and that kind of sense of like how important it is to have this little this little shop where you can go and be a family with these co-workers and know that you know you'll have something to to pay the bills and feed the family with at the end of the day 
Yeah, it is. There's a lot of weight to to small moments and in, in relationships in the film, and I, I think you're right that a lot of that there's an undercurrent of uh, depression era things that um, that mm. affect the tone of the film. But but like you said, it never gets uh, super maudlin. It's um, it's always very grounded and um, also funny. It's definitely funny. Yeah, it is. Well, do you ha- do you have like a favorite character or? Um moment from the film because i have some i have some in mind but i'm curious what what stuck out to you i do love their meeting at the cafe when she's supposed to meet him and he finds out it's her and that whole conversation that they have that back and forth is really just kind of peak uh the, the combination of everything of lubich of sullivan and stewart of what the film is about it kind of just works on all levels Oh, I see you're reading tall stories on a Karenina, huh? Yes, do you mind? No, no. I just didn't expect to meet you in a cafe with Tolstoy. That's all. Quite a surprise. I didn't know you cared for high literature. There are many things you don't know about me, Mr. Krolik. Uh-huh. Have you read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky? No, I haven't. I have. There are many things you don't know about me, Miss Novak. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a fantastic scene. Yeah, the the other one that I think is is really interesting too is um, Frank Morgan, who is the shop owner, mm-hmm. and his his role is sort of mixed. But he, he had you know recently played the Wizard of Oz in the Wizard of Oz. The Great Oz has spoken. Oh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. His kind of ability to be this sort of blustering authority figure, you know, somebody who is granted authority, but is also seems not completely prepared to sort of wield it, but in in a way that is entertaining and a little bit endearing is really neat in this film. No, Mr. Manitaya, it's not for us. But you haven't listened to it. It plays Ojichornia. Well, even if it played Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, I'd still say no. No, I just don't like the idea. It's wonderful the way you can make up your mind so quickly. I've been in this business for 35 years. It took me a whole hour to decide that I like this box. But of course, you're a genius. You know so much more than I. <laughs> the story of him uh, is not really captured at all in You've Got Mail. And so that, that part is sort of interesting. But um, I like his presence in the film. Yeah, he's he's a very warm presence, at least in the end. There are certainly moments where you're kind of like, who is this guy? Like, who does he think he is? Uh, but but yeah, but by the end, it, he is really like a, a charming character in the movie. I know there's another remake of this film, too, that w- from the studio era in the good old summertime with uh, Judy Garland and Van Johnson. And that one is really nice as well. Um, it's a musical. And it has a very late career appearance from Buster Keaton, which um, I don't want to say too much more about that other than that I watched the film going, why is Buster Keaton in this film? I don't get it. Why is he here? And then there is one moment and you go, oh, that's why he's here. He has to do one thing and he does it very, very well. Well, that's a nice tease for for a film I haven't seen yet. (laughs) Maybe I'll do it in order. I'll watch... The the musical, then I'll go back and watch uh, the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan version of the film to, to round it all out. <laughs> or at least the first 20 minutes. If I can make it past yeah. the first 20, maybe I can pass the whole thing. There we go. Yeah, so the the chemistry between Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks is, is great. Um, but, of course, 
Jimmy Stewart, Margaret Sullivan, amazing chemistry here, but this was their third film together. So they'd done two films previous and they would go on to do one more film called The Mortal Storm. Um, shortly before Margaret Sullivan uh, retired from acting, she was uh, a Broadway performer in her early acting days and was pulled off the stage by John Stahl, I think John M. Stahl, for the film Only Yesterday. And in the same year that she did a play on Broadway, she was in the film and it came out. So it was pretty quick turnaround in 33 and by 35, 36, um, she was kind of a name, a name in Hollywood, um, and was commanding enough to say, Hey, I like this guy, Jimmy Stewart for a film. I want him to star in this film with me. Um, and the studios were like, huh, who is this guy? I don't even know his name. (laughs) Um, so in, in a weird way, I think that um, the director of that film, uh, whose name is escaping me, his first name, but last name Griffith, um, not D.W., different Griffith, <laughs> um, <laughs> credit the career of Jimmy Stewart to Margaret Sullivan, who is funny. James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, Margaret, Stull- Margaret Sullivan, Maggie Sullivan, so you know, kind of similarity. Um, but... It's, it's just a funny thing that uh, you don't really see. Like, I think people, if you ask someone who Jimmy Stewart was, they probably could tell you, but they might not be able to tell you who Margaret Sullivan is. Right, yeah. Um, just an interesting coincidence. And the fact that they had such good chemistry together, I think there was even some off-camera kind of drama about their potential relationships mm. outside of uh, filming because their chemistry was so strong on camera that actors were convinced that there's no way they couldn't be having extramarital affairs outside of uh, their okay. work <laughs> okay yeah doesn't seem to be much of a man this friend of yours i mean he walks away he's afraid to come over to the table when another man's sitting there oh no mr Crowley. he was not afraid i can assure you he's tactful he's sensitive he's not the type of man who would walk up to a table uninvited well it's difficult to explain a man like him to a man like you he has visited her because she's not feeling well and she gets a letter from him, but she doesn't know that it's from him. He knows more than she does. And so there is a, there's a real power imbalance there just in terms of like holding certain key pieces of information. So he can be very sort of gracious and gentlemanly. And she is unknowingly, you know, being very sort of cutting to the person who has written this letter. And I just think... There are so many ways that that kind of scene could play out and just be sort of cruel, kind of on either side. Like his character could come across as cruel because like he knows, but he's not telling her and she doesn't know. And she's saying these really sort of, you know, mean things to him, even though he um, has all of this affection for her that he has not yet sort of expressed uh, openly even though there is this tension, there's also this, this warmth. It's just, it's, it's such a nice uh, effect. And I, I'm sure a lot of that is the writing. That's a lot of that is Lubitsch, but, but a, a big part of that too, is just those two particular actors working together in a way that is really special. Yeah. So, so emotionally layered and complex just was like, who knows what, when, yeah, and it really, it takes a lot to, to pull that off and, to make you feel everything that you feel, which is a yeah. lot. You feel a lot in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we'll leave the shop just as it is till after the holiday. I, I want you all to go home now and have a very Merry Christmas. So that was a deep dive into uh, one of the films we're offering in film scene for the next two months, uh, which is always covered in our In Focus magazine. And I want to do a quick highlight, some quick hits from other things you can see at film scene in the next few weeks and i'll start with one that's coming up uh very soon you'll be able to see a film called sidewalk stories this is a lesser known movie uh was restored in 2013 but it came out in 89 it's a film that was written directed produced and stars charles lane a really beautiful um homage to charlie chaplin's the kid it's just as whimsical just as magical and it's even cited by Michelle Hazanovicius as a key inspiration for The Artist, the Oscar-winning film The Artist. So he's the director there. The film tells the story of a young artist living in squalor in New York on the fringes of the financial district and its rushing crowds. Uh, one night he finds a baby, he discovers a baby in a back alley, uh, a little girl whose father's just been murdered. Uh, and though he's certainly living on meager means, he um, he takes the girl in and soon meets a young rich woman who falls in love with the two of them and, and just can't get enough of them. And of course, this whole time he is also trying to find the mother in the situation. Um, it sounds a little grim, a little gruesome, but it, it really isn't in terms of uh, the inciting incident. It's all very sweet. And because it's a silent film, a lot of the emotion is also through the score and the score is very light and playful. So a, a beautiful movie, a $7 ticket. We've even got free cookies at that one. It's a partnership with Shelter House, a local group here at Iowa City. Um, that one is on November 16th at 6.30. And next up, a new film, a film that uh, was in the Berlin Film Festival back in March of this year. It's a film from Georgia, uh, the country, not the state. Uh, it's called What Do We See When We Look at the Sky? And that one opens up on December 3rd. Um, it's a whimsical film, another whimsical film, uh, kind of reminiscent of Amelie, if I had to have a touch point for that. But it's a summer romance uh, that follows World Cup fever in a small Georgian riverside city. These two characters, there's a chance encounter, uh, a soccer player and a pharmacist in they kind of do a meet cute and you see mostly their feet during the scene. You don't really see their faces. And then the next day, they're both kind of awakened in these magically transformed selves. They're, they're not who they were the day before and they can't find each other. There's no way for them to, to connect again. And they kind of they keep brushing up against each other in the small town, working in an ice cream shop, working on this kind of carnival thing, they, different odds and ends and jobs. It's it's really a sweet movie, and it's just beautifully photographed. And there's a lot of dogs, if you're a fan of dogs, which is some like uh, fun dogs who actually are at times going to hang outside of bars to watch the World Cup. So that's it's kind of a, a funny touch as well. One of the smaller releases coming out here at Film Scene this winter, but definitely worth your time. Um, it's, it's among my favorites of the year. I think it's just cracking the top five in, in my personal list, so... The long title, which ends with a question mark, what do we see when we look at the sky? It opens on December 3rd. And a film from last year that's part of our pride at Film Scene, uh, just a few days later, um, 
on December 9th. It's a one-off screening of Shiva Baby. Uh, This is a film that follows a college dropout, well, almost dropout. She's almost graduated and is trying to fool everyone, mostly her parents and her parents' friends, into thinking that she's still a student. But really, she's living with her sugar daddy and well, living alone, sugar daddy kind of comes and goes. Uh, anyway, um, but she has to go to a shiva. The thing is, she goes to a shiva and meets people she doesn't want to see, including her ex-girlfriend. And her sugar daddy shows up. But things just kind of ratchet up the tension step by step. And it really does feel like um, what one person said on Twitter, uh, that shiva baby is uncut gems for hot Jewish sluts. So it's... it. it that's kind of a really good log line for what it is. If you're familiar with Uncut Gems, it's like that, but for like the emotional roller coaster that it is, and hilarious, hilarious movie. Uh, part of our pride at film scene. And last thing I'll touch on quickly from the, this In Focus is a film that has an interesting title and is a really interesting uh, premise. So this one opens on December 17th, and it's from director Radu Jude. Uh, won the Golden Bear at Berlin this year, uh, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. It's it's a film that's really funny, but also very incisive and insightful about kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, cancel culture. But then there's also COVID things that come up and there's even, so it's in three sections. The middle section is this extended essay dictionary kind of a thing with historical footage and all kinds of various things that he uses to kind of give context to the story that's around it. Um, but the story itself is about a school teacher who has her sex tape released and she's teaching at this private uh, school that obviously doesn't take kindly to, to that being out there. And she's forced to meet with parents and have these very awkward conversations and she's threatened to lose her job because of it but it really is a a mix of like this irreverent humor and this scathing commentary although there is just content consideration warnings that there is a couple instances from that tape that are unsimulated sex scenes really it's more about this uh the way that that is treated and how she's vilified for kind of just living her life and obviously that wasn't the intention, she's not a sex worker. She is trying to be a teacher whose personal private things were just leaked and, and now she has to live with those consequences. So that's Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn that opens on December 17th. Just a few highlights from some less lesser known, smaller things that may slip through the cracks uh, in this In Focus. That's our episode. On your way out, don't forget to check out Todd Melby's new book on Fargo and his podcast, Drunk Projectionist. Our closing music is Tchaikovsky's Waltz of the Flowers from The Nutcracker, performed here by the London Regimental Band, augmented by members of the Queen's Hall Orchestra, a recording from the University of California, Santa Barbara Cylinder Audio Archive. Thanks for listening to this episode, and don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get in front of people who may not hear it otherwise. And we will see you next time. 
Happy holidays.